What's up, guys, and welcome to another episode of The Athletic Mindset. Today's guest is a three-time Olympian, two-time Olympic medalist, world champion, NCAA champion, and current contestant on Survivor Season 39. I'm really excited to welcome on Elizabeth Beisel. Hey Elizabeth, how you doing? I'm great, how are you? Awesome, thanks so much for taking my call, I really appreciate it. It's okay. I, f- I feel like you have a million and one things going on in your life right now. So. I'm a little busy lately, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's fine. I'm glad we were finally able to connect. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So, if you don't mind, you want to just dive into things here? Let's do it. Okay. So, how did you get started in swimming? What was your background in it? And when did you kind of fall in love with that sport? So, I started swimming on a team when I was five years old. But growing up in Rhode Island and it being the ocean state, it's sort of one of the things you do growing up is learning how to swim because there's so many beaches and pools around. Um, So I actually learned how to swim when I was six months old with my mom at the YMCA. Uh, And then I joined my first team at five. And I, I was always a water baby. You know, you have the babies that are in the YMCA classes that are crying and screaming and don't want to get in. And then you have the babies that love it. And I was always the baby that loved the water. Um, And then that turned into a love for swimming on the swim team. Um, And I excelled at a pretty pretty fast rate. Um, I started breaking records a couple years into my swimming career at like seven or eight years old. Um, And then blossomed from there and just never looked back. Awesome. And that was at Bluefish, right? Was that the original team you started with? Uh, no, so the original oh. team I started on was Ram Swim Club. Okay. It was out of the University of Rhode Island in Kingston, Rhode Island. And then when I was 10, that's when I switched to Bluefish Swim Club. Gotcha. Um, and then I was on Bluefish from the ages 10 to 18. So I had a long tenure at Bluefish, for sure. I've, on a, a side note, I had um, one of your former coaches, Brad Coyle. Um, oh my gosh, that's right. Brad was literally my coach from like 06 to 10. Yeah. My whole high school uh, career at Bluefish. Yeah, he came down to RMSC where I grew up swimming. And I was also an IMer for reference. And it was so hard to please him because he was like, well, just so you know, like I had this girl, Elizabeth, like back at my old team. And this is what <laughs> oh she's doing. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> No, Brad was one of the best. It's ironic because I've actually gotten back in touch with him uh-huh. um, since the whole Survivor thing has been going on because I guess he's a pretty big fan. Um, so it's been great to be able to reconnect with him and talk about the old days, the glory <laughs> days. No, it is pretty funny. And that was, I always thought like, a, I was always chasing you even though I never knew you personally. Right. It was like, all right, I got to prove Brad wrong. Like, I want to be better than whoever this girl is. Right, this, this random girl who's <laughs> only talking about. And then I found out, you know, exactly who you were and all you did, and was like, okay, I guess if I am going to lose this. Yeah. <laughs> That's too funny. So transition, I guess, while with them, that was when you made your first Olympic team, right? Yep. So I made my first Olympic team under Chuck um, and Brad in 2008. So I was 15 years old. I was a sophomore in high school. Didn't have a license, you know, was just a regular girl hanging out at the mall on the weekends. Um, 
but really excelled in swimming. And that was a really cool experience for me just because I was so young and I feel like experience in anything that you do is the best teacher in life. Mm-hmm. And so for me to go to the Olympics at 15 and place fourth and fifth was really great, but it set me up even better for the next Olympics that I went to in 2012. So was very fortunate to have that opportunity to go at that age because I learned so much. What were your like expectations at 15 going into it? Were you like, I'm going to try to medal or was it just like, Oh, I'm, I'm happy to be here at 15. You know, I was just happy to be there to be <laughs> honest. Um, at an Olympics at 15 years old, of course you want to come back with hardware. That's sort of embedded within the United States Olympic culture mm-hmm. is that you want to come home with a medal. Um, and so that was a goal, but to be honest, me just walking out on that pool deck, being at the Olympic games, it didn't matter whether I won a medal or not. And, you know, for me to come in fourth and fifth was a really huge deal for me because although it wasn't the podium, it was obviously setting me up for the next games that I went to four years from then, because I knew that at 15, if I could be fourth and fifth, Mm -hmm. and surely when I was 19, stronger, bigger, whatever it was, I could definitely get onto the podium. Um, so it was a really good setup for that following Olympics that I ended up competing in. Definitely. Um, and how did you deal, I guess, with those pressures of being so young and making your first team? You know, it, it was almost in my favor that I was so young making my first Olympic team because the pressure wasn't really there. Mm-hmm. I was very naive. All I wanted to do was swim fast. Um, and, you know, it was fun for me. I had nothing to lose. I was 15. And my mindset was, well, all right, if I don't make it this time around, I'll surely make it the next time around. You know, I've, I've truly got nothing to lose. And I think throughout my career, the pressure got greater as the longer I stayed at the top. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's sort of one of those things where you mentally think, okay, if I could do it when I'm 15, I definitely should be able to do it when I'm 19. And then I definitely should be able to do it again when I'm 23, you know? So it's almost the expectations that get to be very heavy on your shoulders. Um, Whereas when I was 15, there were no expectations, no pressure at all. Um, So I definitely think the pressure grew as, you know, my career went along. Is that kind of what ultimately led you to decide to, you know, step away from the sport a few years back? Yeah, definitely. So I, I retired about two years ago and... It was definitely my body saying, hey, I don't want to train for the floor I am anymore. This is taking a toll. So I listened to that. But also mentally, uh, you can't really ignore that part of the sport. And mentally, I was just done. I was done with the pressure. You know, I had the longest tenure on the U.S. national team out of any woman ever. Um, I made it 12 years straight. And that's sort of like my favorite accolade that I have just because it's hard to be the best former Miami for the United States for 12 years mm-hmm. um, and turn her back sugar. So that was probably one of the things I was most proud of in my career, but it did take a toll on me mentally. And I was just, I was done with the expectations. I was done with the pressure, done with the nerves. Um, and I listened to that and I was able to walk away from the sport on really good terms because I walked away loving it. I walked away on a high note and I feel like oftentimes or more often than not, swimmers are forced to retire because of an injury or they got third place at Olympic trials or something out of their control happened um, and they end up resenting the sport. So for me, I was very fortunate to be able to walk away from the sport, loving it, enjoying it, still being able to swim whenever I want, um, 
but really being okay with not being in the competitive scene anymore. Yeah, I think that's huge to be able to, to take that step away at the right time um, yeah. and not get to the point where you absolutely hate the thing and right. have to take away or step away then. ISL, do you think if that was around a few years back, do you think that would be a huge platform for you? Or? Oh, I wish I were still swimming for the <laughs> ISL. I, I think it's an incredible opportunity for swimmers to make money. Um, and not only make money, but grow the sport. And I think that's the side of it that I really love is that we're getting a fan base behind it. We're creating an event that really gets a camaraderie feeling around it. Um, and, you know, for me, being such a versatile swimmer, it would be an incredible event for me because you can put me in the IM, the freestyle, the backstroke, the, whatever it is, I can perform. You know, that's why I think I was such a good college swimmer was that, you know, put me on a relay, put me in breaststroke, whatever it is, I'll deliver. Um, and so to see this ISL league happen and be like, oh, man, I'm just a couple years too late, you know? It's a little frustrating at times, but then again, it's one of those things where it is what it is. I can't change it. I wouldn't go back into the sport at this point in my life. So I'm, I'm pretty happy just sitting back and watching it work out for everybody else. Yeah, definitely. I, I've been pitching it hardcore to um, my summer league that I coach. Um, we're fortunate enough to have one of their dual meets come to D.C. in November. And I'm That's like, right. I'm like, guys, it's literally like summer swimming, but like, everyone's an Olympian there. Like, you gotta yeah, go. It's, Check it it's out. It's actually, like, the coolest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm really excited to, to watch that, um, for sure. Yeah, me too. You touched on, I guess, your college career at Florida. What was that transition to going to college? I mean, you had success prior to NCAA. How was that transition going from, you know, Olympics stage to now you're part of Florida? How'd you end up deciding there? And what helped you out through that career move? Um, yeah, so the decision to go to University of Florida was pretty easy. I knew that I wanted to major in journalism and communications, and they had a top 10 communication school there. So that was great academically. And then athletically, you know, University of Florida has consistently one of the best athletic programs in the nation, and Greg Troy was the coach. And I had gotten really familiar with Greg Troy throughout my national team tenure, you know, going to the Olympics so young and world championships. And he was always the coach that I was paired with. And so I really got comfortable around him. And then he and Chuck were also very close. So I knew that me going to Florida was going to be a seamless transition because Chuck and Troy would always be in constant contact. And that made me feel really comfortable because although it was a new foreign program, I knew that Chuck would always have you know, some type of reach into it and help Troy out, help me out. Um, and so we sort of, we formed like a triangle of communication, which I think made that transition super easy for me. Um, but, it, you know, physically the transition was really difficult because at Bluefish, we were a heavy, heavy yardage program, um, but we didn't really implement much dryland or weights at all. And so going from that to, you know, a professional weight coach, doing dry land three to four times a week, plus doubles, which I had never done in high school. My body was like, what are you doing? This is a lot. Um, so it, it was a hard transition on my body. And I would say it took about four months for me to fully transition and start feeling comfortable at the program. Um, but the University of Florida was the best choice for me, I think. And 
if I were if I were to do it all over again, I would absolutely go to Florida again um, because I ended up staying there for seven years to finish <laughs> out my career. So so swam there for four collegiately and then spent three years there training professionally um, and then moved back to Rhode Island, which was where I grew up. But yeah, the the Florida experience, you know, there's nothing like swimming for a program like Florida with so much rich history um, and you know being able to train alongside Ryan Lochte. Caleb Dressel at the time, Peter Vanderkay was training there, Connor Dwyer, Margaret, I mean, I'm sorry, um, Gemma Spofforth, Teresa Crippen, you know, I could name drop everybody forever. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it really was just an incredible program, and I'm honored to have just been a small part of it, its success throughout the years. No, that's, I think that's really well said, and um, it really speaks to you guys historically as a program have produced, you know, Olympic swimmer, national you know, champion, like, year after year after year. Um, it's been fun to watch as a fan of the sport. Um, yeah, no, it, it was fun to be a part of it, too, for sure, I'll tell you that. Oh, I bet. Uh, what was it like swimming for Greg Troy? Um, I know he's notoriously a hard-practice coach. Um, did you have any specific way that you had to approach each day of training with him? You know, swimming for Coach Troy for me was perfect. I loved every practice. I'm not saying that he and I never got into a fight or a disagreement because that certainly happened. Um, but I think, you know, Coach Troy and I had a pretty special relationship. Um, and I think Chuck really helped foster that because I was so close with Chuck. And, you know, me going to Florida, I was a little bit nervous that I was never going to be able to replicate the relationship I had with Chuck with any other coach. Um, and you know, I, I want I'm somebody that wants to be friends with everybody and I'm a people pleaser. And so going into Florida, I was worried literally that coach Troy wasn't going to be my friend. Um, <laughs> like I just really wanted to be his friend and, you know, th- through a few months, uh, by that point, I would say December of my freshman year, I was going into his office, having meetings about everything, but swimming, whether it was boys or school or friends or Chuck, you know, my family, he was somebody that I could feel comfortable confiding in. Um, and I think it almost turned into a father daughter relationship, uh, which really helped me because I never felt uncomfortable being honest with him. And I think that was the greatest asset in our our relationship as an athlete and a coach was that I was always upfront and honest and he was always upfront and honest with me. Um, and I think that really helped transition from Chuck to Troy but also helped me swim for Troy for seven years Um, because he is a notoriously hard coach, but there is a soft side of him and he cares and everything that he does is meant to benefit his athletes. And yeah, it's a very grueling program. Every single person that swim at Florida will tell you that and attest to that. Um, But if you truly buy into it and trust coach Troy, you're only going to be successful. And for me, it was like, listen, I'm here at Florida. I'm here to swim for you. Let's do this as a team. Um, because I have amazing things that I want to accomplish. And I know that I need you to help me get there. Um, and so swimming for him was, you know, it, it's a dream come true, honestly, to swim for a legend like him. So I was very, very lucky. Yeah, I think you hit it perfectly. I, I know a lot of people that I've talked to, it's, that foundation of trusting whoever your coach is, no matter what sport it is, if you can truly blindly trust them and kind of 
know in the back of your head that he might be asking something ridiculous of me or he or she, whoever your coach may be. But if you trust him blindly and you know he's got your best interests in mind, like it makes it a little bit better. You can get through right. those, those sets a little bit easier. You know, there's some, there's a purpose to all of them. For sure. And I, I definitely did not learn that overnight. Yeah. But slowly but surely I learned that every coach has their swimmer's best intention at heart. Definitely. What would you say the hardest practice you ever had there was? Uh, you know, we did this set annually. It was 2,400 meter freestyles on five minutes best average. And the long course. <laughs> naturally. And, uh, naturally. <laughs> and it was, you know, physically, yeah, it's hard. But it's an eight grand practice. You know, it's not ridiculous yardage. But it's all fast and very condensed. And it's one of those sets that challenges you physically, but more so challenges you mentally. And I think that's what Coach Troy got at every single year was that, yes, your body will fatigue. Your body will fail you at some point, but it's your mind that's going to fail first. And the longer you can actually stay on top of your mind and make sure that your mind doesn't fail before your body, you're going to get a lot out of this. And so every time that we did the set, it was always a chance to test myself mentally and see how much I could truly take because you hear 2400s and then you're on only number seven you're like screw this (laughs) I want to get out you know like this is absolutely terrible I still have 13 more oh my god and it's like the longer that you can put off those negative thoughts the better off you are in the set so I really I'm not like a masochist or anything but I really enjoyed that set because it was such a challenge mentally um because physically i could handle it you know i'm in the best shape of my life 2400s really isn't that big of a deal but it's the mental side of it that was really tough yeah i think it's huge that it sounds like he was definitely able to foster that environment where you felt comfortable failing in practice and pushing yourself to the point of failure so that yeah when the the lights came on with the big meets it it wasn't like a shock to you uh, exactly. All, you had all that background. Do you think that really helped, like your four AM and and your two back and all that? Definitely. I, I'm a swimmer where all of my confidence comes from the work that I do at practice. Um, and so sets like those 2400s, really grueling 400 IM sets, although they're extremely hard and not fun at all, those are the things that I needed to step up behind the blocks confidently. And I knew that. And so I almost embraced sets like that because I knew that once I got through those, I was one step closer to having a really good swim at the end of the year. Um, And, you know, it was one of those things where, yeah, if I failed, I would be disappointed. But as long as I knew that I gave it everything that I had, it was okay to fail. You know, it's not a big deal if you fail as long as you're giving 100%. And Coach Troy knew whether somebody was giving 100% or not. And, you know, I would say 99% of the time I was always giving 100%. You know, some practices I'd show up and I'd just go through the motions. And that's any athlete because we're all human. Um, But I would really, really try to make an effort to show up with purpose every practice that I went to. Yeah, that's one thing I, I preach a lot to my kids. It's like, when I'm working with them and, you know, it's not going their way that day. They don't feel great. They had a long day at school. They come to me. It's like, okay, look, you don't feel 100%. Why don't we shift our focus away from how you're feeling? We can focus on 
you know, better turns, better streamlines, better underwater. Right. It's like shifting that focus and still having a purpose each practice. There's no way you, you swim perfectly every practice. Like you said, right. we're all human. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also want to, I want to ask you, so Brad actually famously gave my group every year, um, an apple speech. I was wondering if that came from Bluefish, and do you know what, are you familiar with that? The apple speech. She would, so I've described. Oh my God, about the tree. Yep. Yes. Okay, that was Bluefish. Okay, hold on. I'm vaguely remembering it. Is it like anybody can get the apples at the bottom of the tree, but the further you climb, the better they are or something? Yeah, so like the apple was always your goal, and like the ladder height, I guess, was dependent on your training back, you know, leading up to that event. So if you, yes. if you had crushed training for the past nine months, your ladder was super high, but you still had to jump for that apple. At some point, you just would have to jump a little less than someone who didn't put that work in. Is that something yep. I guess that carried through your career? Because it definitely stuck with me through mine. Yeah. Absolutely. God, I haven't even thought about that in so long. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you reminded me that. But it is true. Like At some point, you are going to have to branch out and put yourself out there and dream so big you think it's crazy um but you know that was sort of me like I never limited myself in any dream that I had you know I remember being seven years old and like watching the Sydney Olympics on TV and being like yep I want to do that I go home and google you know odds of becoming an Olympic swimmer for the United States and the odds are 0.003 percent and I remember literally turning to my mom and being like mom there's a chance. And she was probably like, Oh God, like stop, <laughs> stop going on the internet and seeing these things because you're just setting yourself up for failure. But for me, it was, you know, I was always going to show up and work hard. I'm a blue collar athlete. I'm not the biggest. I'm not the most talented. I don't have the God given gifts that Michael Phelps has or Katie Ledecky or whatever you want to call it. I'm just your average Joe. And so for me being sort of a normal athlete, I had to work really hard and I had to dream really big. And I think those are the two things that I did exceptionally well compared to everybody else. Um, you know, there was no dream that was too big, no set that was too hard. And I fully embraced everything with open arms because I knew that's what I had to do to be the best. And so I think that definitely resonates to the Apple story of just <laughs> knowing that at some point you're going to have to jump and it might be crazy, but you can definitely do it. Yeah. And I mean, everything that I've heard about you it's like your work ethic i think is precedes you um well it's the only thing i had going for me so <laughs> hey it got Thanks. you to where, where you are and all that so that's i mean yeah, that's absolutely true. phenomenal how did you handle mentally the pressures of performing on some of the biggest stages i guess in the world i was you know so i was notoriously somebody that got really nervous before my races um, especially early on in my career, I would throw up before, before all my races, um, like at national team meets. So whether it was at Pampax Worlds or Olympics, Olympic trials, I was always throwing up before my races. And I realized, I, I sort of had an epiphany moment at the 2008 Olympic Games. I had <laughs> thrown up before my Turner Backstroke final um, because I was so nervous. And I remember after throwing up, thinking to myself, I'm only hurting myself right now. This is literally ruining my chances of winning a medal. Why have I put in all this hard work all year round to ruin it by being so nervous? 
you know, the me is your time to shine. It's your time to put your hard work to work. And, you know, it was one of those epiphany moments that I was like, I, I'm better than this. I deserve better than this. I should treat myself better than this. And so after that meet, I never threw up again before a race. And I embraced the nerves and the pressure because the nerves and the pressure meant that I was doing something really cool, whether it was the Olympics or world championships, and that I, I cared. Because if you're not nervous, you don't care. Um, and as long as you can control those nerves and know that those nerves mean that you're ready to do something special, I think you're going to be fine. And it does take a little bit of time. It took me three or four years to finally realize that, hey, you don't have to throw up before your race anymore. You can acknowledge that you're nervous, but you don't let it ruin your swim. Um, and, and that's one of those things, like I said earlier, experience is the best teacher. And I had to learn from my mistakes um, and how to fix those. So, I, you know, I was lucky to be good at such a young age because I learned those lessons really early on in my career. Yeah, I always tell, I mean, I, I think everyone gets nervous before the races. But I, I always tell people, and especially my athletes, you got to acknowledge it. You got to right. embrace it. There's such good thing. There's good nerves. There's a good nervous. And there's bad nervous. Um, yes. But you hit it. Like if you're not nervous, you don't care about the race. Um, you need that nerves to kind of get your excitement and your arousal levels up to perform in the first place. Exactly. Because if you don't have that, you're going to swim flat. You're going to feel like you yep. have no energy and the race is going to get away from you very, very quickly. Yep. I agree. Um, did you have any other pre-race routine, hopefully other than what you just said? Um, other than throwing up? <laughs> that... Um, you found, I guess, throughout your career? I'll, I'll touch a little bit on that. So I remember at the 2008 Olympics, um, obviously it being my first Olympics, I was sort of trying to take anything from the big names, like Michael Phelps, Natalie Coleman, Ryan Lochte. And by that I mean, okay, I'm watching Michael before his race and he's listening to music, so that's what I should be doing. Or Natalie's wearing a parka behind the blocks, that's what I should be doing. And I slowly realized that, yeah, some of these things were good that I was learning and taking from these people, but the other things weren't working for me. You know, I'm not somebody to listen to music before my race. It actually makes me more nervous. It makes me overthink my race. And it took me learning the hard way. So for me, a pre-race ritual isn't listening to music, but it's me talking to whoever it is that will talk back to me. Like, I just want to have a conversation to keep my mind off the race. Um, and I think that was something that I learned through experience, uh, and learned through failure. So, you know, for me, I'll do my big warm up, dry off, put on my racing suit, jump back in for a second warm up. That's only about 10 minutes, dry off, go to the ready room. I'm always the last to the ready room. Uh, I don't like spending much time in there. And then once I'm in the ready room, I'm trying to talk to whoever it is that I can talk to just to sort of mitigate the nerves that I'm feeling. Um, and then, you know, when I'm on the blocks, I clap three times, and then I go. So not like crazy superstitious, but definitely had a routine that worked um, and that I perfected throughout my career, and that's that's what I stuck to. Yeah, it's funny. I actually I do the same, or I used to do, I guess. I don't swim anymore. Um, used to do the same three claps um, before my Yeah, race. I love the three claps. I don't know when it started, but it, it stuck. I, I think for me it came in, in high school. But it was, people were like, where did that come from? Why do you do that? Especially in high yeah, school. So yeah. they were like, why are you doing that? That's just annoying. I was like, for me, that was my mental, like, 
lock in moment. Like I knew yeah, after like, three claps, go. it was it's time to go. It was me and whatever I was going to do in the water. It wasn't what the guy next to me was doing or, you know, anything like that. Would you say the kind of the same thing for you? Yeah, totally. It was like my, all right, I'm on the blocks. It's time to go. Same thing as you. And that was, that was my thing. You know, like Michael Phelps has his arm swings. <laughs> we had our three claps. Like everybody's going to be doing something different. That makes them almost feel comfortable before the race. And that was just my like, all right, did my class. Now let's go. Yeah. And I think you also, yeah. you also touched on it really well. I mean, it's hard to be naive and look around and be like, oh, like so-and-so is doing this. So-and-so is doing this. I got to do that too because they're successful. Um, I told a story on a, another episode where I had a teammate that um, wanted to, to swim like me, but we did totally different events. And he literally copied my warm-up from start to finish at the meet. And I was like, dude, like, this is for me. Like, this is my warm-up. It works for right. me. It's not going to work for you. And it's funny, you know, he, he realized that after the fact when he, he didn't swim very well. Um, yeah. What, I guess, advice do you have for people that are trying to figure out what works for them? Just trial and error or? Trial and error, for sure. That's what I did. And, you know, it's one of those things where you're not going to figure out what works until you figure out what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And you might get it first try, or you might get it the tenth try. Um, but for me, I was like trying everything, you know, listening to music, meditating, whatever it was. I was trying it because I wanted to know how I performed my best. Um, and I definitely think trial and error, uh, you know, at least for me, was the best approach. What did you think of the meditating? I love meditating, but for me, not before pre-race okay you know me meditating before a race you know 20 minutes before a race almost put me to sleep (laughs) um i would get like too relaxed but i think meditating in general whether it's before the night before a meet or maybe between prelims and finals that's the time those are the times that i would meditate but i would never meditate right before race i was that's when i was trying to keep my energy up talk to people um and almost you know stay energized not relaxed yeah i've touched on it before on on this podcast there's an inverted you kind of theory of arousal to swimming or not to swimming but just sport and performance athletic performance in general and it's very there's a fine line between being under aroused and you're kind of on the like not intrigued you're flat and then there's kind of your optimal, you need to be engaged, but you can't be overly engaged. I think you found right. with the music that kind of pushed you over the, the you know, the, the pinnacle, I guess, of the inverted you and kind of more into the, okay, now I'm overhyped. I'm not going to perform as well. Do you think that's fair to say? Uh, I think that's absolutely fair to say. And, and you know what I love about just this conversation in general is that everything at a meet comes down to your mindset. Like, yes, you have to do the work beforehand for that whole season, but your work can go straight down the drain if you don't figure out what works best for you out of meet mindset-wise. And that can be music, talking to somebody, uh, dealing with your nerves, even like, it's all of those things. And I think that's the coolest thing is that in the sport of swimming, we're finally getting to that point where we're talking about mindset more um, and mental health and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's truly you know what separates a good swimmer from a great swimmer 
is those 20 minutes before a race. What is your mindset before the race? Are you excited? Are you confident? Are you ready to kick butt? Or are you nervous and not confident and scared? You know what I mean? So it's, it's those swimmers that really have that mindset of, I don't care who I'm racing. I don't care how many records they have or what their name is or blah, blah, blah. I'm going to be the best version of myself tonight, and hopefully I win. And if I don't, then I'll come back next time and give it another try. Um, but I think that was a huge mindset tool for me was being like, listen, even if I don't win, I'm still going to be the best version of myself tonight, and I'm going to do what's best for me. Um, and I think that's a really, really big thing that I learned throughout my career. Yeah, and swimming, I, I tell people, is very unique because you can have two perspectives on it. You can be very outcome-oriented in the f- sense of, I want a medal. I want to, you know, well, no matter what the meet is, you want to get that medal. You want to get your hand on the wall first. But at the end of the day, I think the better way to approach it is you want you should be able to, to want more so to do a best time and do a personal best. And then whatever right. happens, happens outside of that. Yeah, I agree. And, right. and it's cool because everybody's definition of success is different. Um, but at the end of the day, personal success always trumps any other type of success. And would, that's the personal bests. Yeah, would you say your motivation was more internal in that sense then? I would say mine was definitely. I was always trying to be the best version of myself. Um, I just happened to be one of the best in the world while doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was sort of twofold for me where if I, you know, sometimes if I got a best time, it was also a medal and that's great. But you know, for me, if it was a best time and I was fourth at the Olympics, would I be bummed? Yeah. But would I also be stoked? Of course, because that was the best Elizabeth Beisel there had ever been. And it just wasn't enough to get a medal that day. And sometimes that's okay. Yeah, I think the competitor in you would definitely be a little, if you know, if any, slightly disappointed. But to have that perspective to look internally and be like, well, you know, that was the best I could do. Acknowledge it and then use that to drive you to the next race. Yeah, um, exactly. Always, always find, like, the silver lining and everything. Yeah, I think there's always, I mean, always going to be another race. Um you can't go out there every time and, and do a best time. Uh, right, no way. The sooner people realize that, the better off they're going to be long term. Yeah, seriously. Um, what was, I guess, does, I want to talk about your breakthrough in 2012. As we're talking about accolades, you finally did get that medal um, on the Olympic stage, a silver in the 4IM and a bronze in the 200 back. What was it like? being able to stand on that podium representing something bigger than you, you were representing our country and all that. Standing on the podium at the Olympics is, I honestly can't really put it into words. Um, You know, I'd stood on the podium at world championships at Pampax, all that stuff before, but the Olympics is different because it's the pinnacle of our sport. And it is truly the only time when swimming is recognized and swimming almost matters to people other than the people in the swimming world. Um, and so for me to be representing the United States standing on the podium, it, it was a dream come true. It was an honor. Um, you know, my first medal was a silver and he, she went from China had won that event. So we listened to the Chinese national anthem, which was great, but I, 
I think I hold a special place in my heart for my bronze because Missy had won that. Mm-hmm. So I was able to stand on the podium and listen to the United States national anthem. And that was one of the most powerful moments of my life because I did something with not just a teammate, but a, a best friend um, where she broke the world record. I think it was the first event where two Americans were on the podium, either the first or second event. Um, so to do that together and then I just remember standing on that podium and looking out over the pool and seeing the reflection of the two American flags on the surface of the pool and just getting the chills in that moment and knowing that, wow, one of those flags was because of me. And that's not me. That's my country. And I think it's, it's such a moving moment. And will I ever feel that feeling again? Absolutely not. I don't think there's any chance that I will ever replicate that feeling again. Um, But it was one of those moments where I knew it was probably the first and the last time that I would feel that. So I took it in. I was present. And I can hold that moment very close to my heart because I know that I, I, I keep it, you know, I, I didn't take it for granted. I was there present. I was in the moment and it was, it was a once in a lifetime moment. And I'm really, really glad that I got to experience it. I think that's perfectly said. I mean, it is <laughs> Thank you. It is hard to obviously put that kind of moment into words, but I think you did a, as good a job as any to do so <laughs> with what you just <laughs> Thank did. Thank you. Um, I want to touch on, we talked about mindset pre-race. In the race itself, what's going through your head, especially, you know, the 4am, having done it myself, it. It kind of sucks at times. It depends on what your strengths are, I guess, stroke-wise. <laughs> yep. What was going through your head um, specifically during that one? In London? And either in London or just in any 4 a.m. In, in general. In general. Um, so any 4 a.m. in general, I was always – so fly was my weak stroke. And so I knew that I was going to be pretty far back compared to the rest of the pack after fly. But my only goal in fly was to just hold on, um, you know, stay as close to the pack as I could. And then backstroke's obviously my strongest stroke. So I would swim that next 100 backstroke, building it. And so all the hundreds after fly would be negative split. So I would build that first 50 of backstroke and hammer down the second one. Breaststroke, I would build the first 50, bring it back the second. And then freestyle was honestly an all-out sprint. And that, that race strategy worked really well for me. Um, I had started that race strategy when I went to Florida and I, you know, it gave me the best four I am's of my life. And so I think it's really important as a former I am to know your strengths and weaknesses. And for me, that meant not freaking out when I was touching seven after butterfly at the Olympics and being like, well, I'm going into this seat at first. And here I am last <laughs> after the first hundred, you know, I had to train myself to not freak out because I knew that I was going to be last after Butterfly. That's not where I shine in the four I am. I shine in the last, you know, 300 of it. And so it was one of those things where you have to sort of swallow that hard pill of being like, yep, I'm going to start the race behind, but then I'm going to build my way back into it and everything will be okay. And as soon as I stopped freaking out about that and the more I embraced the race strategy, the better it started to work. And the more times that I did it, the more times I perfected it and you know, the 4IM, everybody has a different race strategy because everybody has different strengths. 
Um, and so, you know, if you are somebody listening to this that swims before I am, figure out your strengths and your weaknesses and figure out what type of swimmer you are. Do you like being out first? Will it freak you out if you're last? You know, all of those things really play into a strong former IMer. Um, but, you know, that's how I did mine most successfully. Yeah, what I liked most about that event personally was it, I think it really shows who is like a really well-rounded swimmer. It's, you know, yeah. it's a little bit of everything. And you can't, I mean, being really good at one stroke out of the four will help you, but it won't get you that title of being the best or winning the race, you know? Um, yeah. I was the opposite of you. I was, I took it out and flying back and then... I had to on. <laughs> hang on for dear life in breaststroke yeah. as everyone seemed to catch up to me. And I was like, oh, my God, just get to freestyle. Get to freestyle. I know. Please get me home. Get me to the wall. It was like every pull out. Oh, my God. Okay, this is the last one. Okay. I know. Okay, thank God. <laughs> but I think no matter what your strategy is, whether it's mine or yours and some other strategy, I think the sooner you realize you swim your own race – then the better off you'll be in the long run. Yeah, I, I think so too, because I spent so many years of my life swimming my cornered IM based off of the person next to me, um, and that never goes well. You <laughs> might have an okay race, but is it going to be your best race? No. So for me, it was like, all right, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to read anybody else. They can swim their race off of me if they want, um, but I myself at the end of the day, I'm going to do what I know how to do best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's well said. Do you have any tips for younger swimmers um, on how to approach both prelims and then how to approach finals as well? So prelims, you know, as you get older, um, you know how to manage a little bit better. You know, I would be able to hold back a little bit or I would be able to read how everybody else is swimming. But it's also one of those things where you don't want to play around with too much um, because you do want to make it to finals. And, you know, I think it's a really important thing to swim fast in prelims um, because if you can swim fast in prelims, you're always going to make it back and then you're going to always have that chance to swim even faster at night. Um, so for younger swimmers, take advantage of prelims and use it as a chance to race because I think a lot of us have that mindset of, oh, I'm going to save it up for finals. Because I'm always better at finals. And that's okay, but if you're wasting a prelim race and you feel really good that morning, but you're like, oh, I'm going to hold back because I want to do better at finals, you could have had a best time in that prelim race. And so I think, like I was saying, for especially the younger kids, use every race possible to go fast. Don't wait for finals. Don't wait for the big meet. Every chance you get to step up on the blocks, is a chance for you to go really fast and potentially do something special. Because if you're like me, sitting here on the phone right now, I don't have any more opportunities to race. And I definitely wish I had taken advantage of the opportunities that I had in prelims or at a smaller meet that, that quote-unquote didn't matter. Um, because at the end of the day, those meets do matter. Those meets are what shape you into the athlete that you become eventually. Um, so, uh, you know, my advice would be, Take advantage of every chance you have to step up on those blocks. Prelims, finals, championship meet, dead tired meet in the middle of the season, whatever it is. It's a chance for you to be better. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think the epitome of who does it really well, at least especially right now, is Katie Ledecky. Um, uh-huh. I feel like every weekend almost you're looking in the news and you're like, oh, oh Katie set another American record this weekend. And you're like, but it was a random meet in Indianapolis. Like, how? Why? Yeah. Um, but I think she is perfect at just taking advantage of that opportunity and just letting it rip because there's no pressure there. You know, you might as yeah. well. Um, exactly. Might as well. Why not? The other point I think you were touching on briefly there too is I always like to tell people that the meets are won in prelims. You can't win a meet as a team by having a crappy prelim swim and just True. being like, oh, like, well, I'll have a better final swim because I'm sure you had teammates that when it came to finals, they did awesome. They dropped time, but they were in the B final and they got ninth. And they probably could have gotten third overall or maybe even won the event overall. But because they didn't swim in the morning, perform in the morning, um, they were stuck in ninth. Yeah. And that's something you never want to see happen, regardless of what meet it is. Whether it's a local championship meet or the Olympics. You know, mm-hmm. ninth is, I would rather swim on the outside lane in lane eight every day over a middle lane in the B final. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just getting that, that open water in the middle um, yeah. isn't worth, you know, not being able to, you know, win <laughs> or have yeah, a chance I, I know, to exactly. win. Exactly. You're exactly right. Um, now, obviously, you've had tremendous success internationally and collegiately. How did you stay motivated throughout your whole career and not really experience burnout after all the years? Yeah, I, I wish I had, like, a particular like specific answer for that. Uh-huh. I think the only thing that remained true throughout my entire tenure on the national team was that I loved it. I'm not saying that I never wanted to quit, that I never hated swimming at some point, but at the end of the day, if it became if it was between quitting or staying, I was always staying. Even if I disliked it at the time. And I think that's so important to have because we chose a sport that is probably the hardest sport in the world, or at least one of the hardest sports. You know, we stare at a black line for four hours a day. We run, we lift weights, we do dry land. We dedicate our life to this sport. And without a lot of recognition, you know, the pinnacle is every four years at the Olympics. We don't have a World Series every year or an NBA Finals. You know, it's a really hard sport to be in. And I accepted that. I rose to that occasion, and I loved it. And I think loving it and having a good attitude is, at the end of the day, the most, most important thing. It doesn't matter how many meters you're swimming or how much weight you're lifting or how many miles you're running. I think as long as you have that passion and fire for what you're doing, you'll be able to sustain that career for as long as you want. And, you know, the minute that I lost that passion and that fire was the minute that I looked myself in the mirror and said, you know what, Elizabeth, it's time to retire. Like, your time is done. Your body says no. Your mind says no. Let's let's listen to it. Um, but, you know, for me, I was able to keep that up because I loved it for so long. Mm-hmm. And I guess elaborating on that, too, do you have any tips for younger swimmers, especially female swimmers? I see it all the time where females especially are – number one in the nation or, you know, top 16 in the nation at 12 and then come 
you know, junior year of high school, they're, they're quitting the sport. What, I guess, advice do you have for those that are dealing with that kind of thing, going through high school and wondering, like, should I do this or not? Even though they totally. have promise. I think if you're in that situation where you feel like you've peaked at 12 and then you're in a plateau in your teenage years, I think you need to remember that the best has yet to come. There's no chance that your best swimming was when you were 12 years old. Um, And whether that means you just need to wait it out until you go to college or you need to just take a step back for a minute and truly think and remember why you love the sport and why you do the sport, you know, that's what you need to do. That's okay. But know that there's always a light at the end of the tunnel and – we all go through ups and downs. You know, there was a period of time in my career where I didn't go best time in my career backstroke for four years. Yes, I was still going times that were at the top of the world, but personally, I was in a really big and really long plateau. But I knew that that plateau was not forever. It wasn't like, oh my God, I'm never going to see a good true backstroke again in my life. Yeah, it was frustrating to have that four years period where it wasn't good, but I had faith knowing that if I came to practice every single day and knew that there was a tuner backstroke inside me that was going to be the best, I could do it. I would stick it out. And you know what? When I did finally go that best time in my tuner backstroke and broke my four-year drought, it was when I won a bronze medal at the Olympic Games. So, you know, sometimes it happens at the best moments possible. And I would never change that four-year plateau for anything because it made that to your backstroke final that much sweeter. Yeah, I think you learn to appreciate those best times too so much more when you go through those periods of plateaus. Yep, um, absolutely. I had that count, you know, junior and senior year of high school. I didn't go best time. And I was like, what the heck? Like, this is the time where I'm supposed mm-hmm. to go best times and get recruited to colleges. What am I doing? Yeah, totally. Um, but you stick it out and... Hopefully, the times are right around the corner. Yep, and they, they normally always are. <laughs> Definitely. Um, now, with any skill, there's like a certain order, order of mastery. It starts off kind of as a novice, like you said, with your um, toddler lessons and all that. And then you progress to an advanced beginner, a competent stage where you're kind of knowing what you're doing. Then you become proficient. And then finally, there's that expert stage. Is there any point in your career that you could truly look back on and say, okay, that was when I became an expert at my sport? Ooh, you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's it's always, for me, a fluid journey. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't pinpoint one, one particular race or instance when I – looked in the mirror and watched the race or whatever it was and said, I am an expert now. Um, I think I was constantly perfecting. You know, I think I won junior nationals when I was 11 and that was a huge stepping stone in my career. And then when I went to nationals as 13 year old and made my first national team, that was another huge stepping stone. Um, and then at 15, making my first Olympic team, another huge stepping stone. Um, You know, maybe when I went to my first Olympics, that was when I was like, I am an expert. 
I have made it to the pinnacle of my sport. There is no higher, you know, no higher meet than this. And I've done it. And so maybe, you know, from an outsider looking in, that's when I became an expert. But personally, I was always trying to improve on something. I was never perfect. And I don't think as athletes, we are ever perfect. You know, you can talk to Michael Phelps and have him tell you about his eight gold medals in Beijing, but that wasn't a perfect meet for him. There's something that he was upset about or whether, you know, his goggles came off in the Twitter fly or there's always something. Um, and so I don't think I ever truly reached a state of perfect or expert. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting question because, yes, I was at an expert level, but did I ever consider myself a true expert? I don't, I don't think so. I think there's no right answer there, first off. Right. No, um, I know, yeah. But the more and more I delve into just that in particular, it's it's not really something that you are ever consciously aware of that you are shifting into that phase of whatever the skill is. It's kind of just a subtle progress, progression. It's not, from what I found, it's not a defining one moment, okay, on this date, I became a master or expert. Right, right. It's a continuous thing. Um, and I think you taught, and you, you explained it pretty well. Um, possibly the progression that you experienced where you might have gotten there. Uh, and I think you did get there, but the competitor and you won't allow yourself to be satisfied with what you did. You're always trying to yeah, be better. Yeah, I agree with that. Totally. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's been your t- biggest takeaway from swimming? Biggest takeaway is the people. Um, you know, I, I think the swimming world is so small and we are such a rare breed of people that all of the people that I surround myself with in my life, you know, my closest circle are swimmers. And I don't think that's a coincidence at all. And I, I think it's because we go through so much. We understand the ups, the downs, the hardships, the successes on a different level than anybody else can truly understand it. Um, and I think the people are the greatest thing that I got from swimming. It's not the medals. It's not the records, not the Olympics. It's, it's me being able to talk to you, Corey, because without meeting Liz and swimming at the university of Florida, we would have never done this. Yeah. And that's why it's, it's so cool because we're all just one degree of separation away from each other. And you know, I don't really know any other sport that has such a closeness and camaraderie around each other. Um, and if there is, let me know. Um, but I definitely think swimmers are a rare breed and we surround ourselves. We're, you know, we're the hardest workers. We're some of the best people. We're kind, we're giving, we're, we're honest. Um, and I think everything that comes with being a swimmer is, is something that you can truly only learn by being a swimmer. Yeah. And one thing I noticed, I mean, especially after starting this and, you know, touching into those degree of separations and, and meeting friends of friends, um, that excelled in the sport. It's like, you know, in my mind, when I first, like when I first heard, Oh, I might be able to get in touch with Elizabeth. Awesome. Like she did all this. And then just talking to you though, it's like, Oh, well, okay. Like she's a, she's just like every other swimmer. And in one sense, like there's such, such commonalities there that 
I don't think any other sport really shares as well. Totally. I agree. I agree. Um, now, I guess looking back on your career, is there any one personality trait? I think you touched on it with your work ethic that you could really attribute to your success. I, I mean, definitely work ethic for me. Um, but, you know, I think another one was just perseverance. And I know that's such like a cliche thing. <laughs> um, but I say that because for me, I was at such a high level for so long. There was a lot that I had to persevere through that maybe not the everyday swimmer deals with. Um, and that was me persevering through the pressure, the expectations, um, you know, everything that comes with being an elite athlete for 12 years. And that took us, you know, it took a toll on me. It was a big weight on my shoulders and it took perseverance for me to stay at the top, to be mentally strong enough to stay at the top, um, and sort of accept that at one point I knew my best swimming was behind me but I still wasn't ready to be done with the sport. And I think that's a tough pill to swallow, knowing that your best is behind you and that you're never going to be that again, um, but still having the willingness and the toughness to persevere through that and stick it out for one more Olympics or one more World Championships. Um, I think it takes a special person, and I think I, I have that little special thing inside me um, and, and I think that was something that I really attribute my success to. Do you think it's anything that coaches would be able to help foster in their athletes? Or do you think it's just something you're born with? You know, I, I think I definitely was born with it because I see it pour over into other parts of my life. Um, but I do think that it's something that a coach can help foster. Um, and you do that every day by helping your kids believe in themselves and, staying positive and telling them that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, whether there's a light or not. Um, because at times I thought there was a light, but then there ne it never came, you know? Um, but at least keeping that good attitude and knowing that at one point you will reach your goals, you will have your dreams come true and you just have to persevere through it. You have to be tough. You can't expect success overnight. And it's just all those little lessons that we hear every day that oftentimes sound cliche, that are the ones that at least got me through hard times or a plateau or whatever it is that you want to call it. Um, but I definitely think it can be fostered. Um, and maybe it takes a little bit of extra inside of you, but it can definitely be helped by a coach. Definitely. Um, I know I know. swimming's over with, you, over with for you now. Um, currently on Survivor. We can't touch on that, but I do want to touch on... <laughs> Uh, I recently saw that you're writing a book that's coming out next year, right? Yes, correct. How's that process going? Um, and what, I guess, do we have to look forward to in that? Yeah, so the process is actually great because the manuscript is done. Um, <laughs> ironically, I submitted the final manuscript about an hour ago. Nice. Um, so that was a huge relief. Thank you so much. Um, so I can finally take a deep breath know that it's in the hands of the publishers now. And so from here on out, it's basically the publishing company doing final touch edits, whether that's grammatical errors or con nothing really content because they liked the way that it was written. I was able to write it with a dear friend of mine named Beth Fair, 
Um, and she's just a brilliant author and I was so fortunate to work with her on it. But yeah, now it's all the fun stuff for me. I get to pick the picture of me on the cover. <laughs> I get to pick the font, you know, the acknowledgements. It's all the fun, fluffy stuff that I can now enjoy because the hard work has been done. Um, and yeah, it's, it's going to be out by February, 2020, maybe even a little bit sooner, depending on edits and, uh, graphic design, stuff like that. But yeah, I'll be selling it by February. I'm going to be bringing it with me whenever I go public speaking or at clinics, going to try to have a booth at Olympic trials. Um, so definitely a lot of fun things to look forward to now that the final manuscript is out of my hands and into the publisher's hands, uh, which was the biggest hurdle to hoop through. Um, so yeah, everything's great. That's fantastic. And what's kind of the message is just your career in general and your takeaways or. Yeah. So it, you know, it was a fun cathartic process for me because I had kept a journal throughout my entire swimming career, um, writing down stories that I thought shaped me into the person and the athlete that I was and am today. And, you know, every time that I went to a clinic or speaking engagement, I always got the question, hey, do you have a book? And I would always answer, no. And then I would leave the clinic being like, God, I really need to get on this book thing. Um, and so ironically, I met the woman that wrote the book for me, Beth, at an open water swimming thing that I did in Rhode Island every summer. And she expressed her love to write and how she was an author. And I was like, this is so serendipitous. I've been meaning to write a book. I have all these stories. How would you feel about putting them together for me in a book? And she, of course, was like, I would love to. I would be honored. Um, so she helped me put those stories into writing and edited all of them, formatted them for me. It really made it come to life. And now it's it's really about my, my journey, things that help shape me into the person I am today, like I said, and some funny swimming stories. But I, it's meant for the reader to be a swimmer, but more so just somebody that's looking for inspiration in their life. Um, like, yes, I touch on a lot of swimming topics, but I tried to write it in a sense that a basketball player could pick it up or, you know, a musician could pick it up and draw their own parallels to lessons and stories that I lived. So I, I tried to keep it a, a well-rounded story, which I, I don't know if that I did it well enough. You guys will have to be you know, the testers to that, but it was really fun writing it and looking back on my career and really appreciating it for what it was. Excellent. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to picking up a copy uh, when it is awesome. released. Awesome. Thank you, Corey. I appreciate yeah. that. Of course. Um, best of luck on Survivor this season. Um, Thank you. Hopefully you win and all that. Um, you guys will just have to watch and see. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you for tuning in to yet another episode. If you enjoyed Elizabeth's story and advice on how she became the swimmer she is today, go ahead and check out her book when it comes out next year. You can also keep up with her as she currently competes on Survivor Season 39, Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern on CBS. Please rate and review us five stars and continue to share what you learned here with those that would also benefit. I'll see you all on Monday as I welcome on current Chicago Bear cornerback, Rashard Font. Have a great weekend.